Phoenix Sun podcast here on Bright Side of the Sun. This is Chris Habis. As always, we kicked Jim Kokenauer off of the bus. Um, just just couldn't deal with him anymore. So it's me and Dave King today talking Phoenix Suns. And we actually have a special guest. We're going to be talking off-season. And a lot of off-season basketball has to do with front office and logistics and things that just kind of are over our head and over the casual fan's head. So we're going to bring in former Phoenix Suns scout Amin Al-Hassan here in just a moment. But first... Dave, how are you doing here tonight? We're recording this on a Tuesday, going up on Wednesday. Oh, I'm doing great. I'm trying to stay awake after such boring second-round playoff basketball, but other than that, I'm doing real good. I'm wishing the Suns were still in these playoffs so I could uh, root for somebody. Yeah, I was a little bit uh, a little bit mean on Twitter when uh, Michael Beasley decided to drive the lane and open like the Red Sea, and he got a dunk, and now Michael Beasley oh, has man. more... He has more playoff points than the 13-14 Phoenix Suns, which is kind of a sad notion. That's sad. <laughs> so without further ado, we're not going to drag this out too long here with you guys having to listen to... Uh, I'm not as uh, verbally gifted as Dave Kokenauer, but without listening to me droll on over and over. Dave Kokenauer? Oh, Jim Kokenauer. Sorry, Dave Kokenauer. I, I think I just created a monster. <laughs> uh, so Amin Al-Hassan, he's on the line here. How are you doing tonight, Amin? How's it going? I'd just like to point out that Beasley scored more points than the 13 14, 12 13, 11 12, and 10 11 Suns all combined. Oh, I didn't want this year's Suns to feel bad and left out. There you go. There, you know what? That's a, that's, a, that's a more unique and depressing way to look at it. Uh, how are you doing today, I mean? I'm doing well. I've already been 55 episodes. There has been, and I think you've been on a few. So uh, if we if we count like repeating episodes and part twos, we might be a little bit a uh, little bit less there. But yeah, fifty five episodes. We're glad to have you on talking Suns and off season and kind of kind of what's going through the minds there. Not necessarily of this front office, but just front offices in general. I'm I'm happy to be here. Let's get it started. All right. Well, hey. Um, so I mean, first of all. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, just to recap for people who haven't listened to you on previous podcasts, Amin worked in the Suns front office for several years up until 2012. And uh, so I want to get some perspective of a little bit of whatever you can share from behind the scenes of working in a front office during the off season. We're clearly not going to get any uh, real, you know, juicy information from Ryan McDonough or from Juan Babby or Jeff Hornacek or anybody else in anyone's front office. But Amin's not in the front office anymore, so you can at least give us the lowdown, maybe even with a couple examples of what's happened in the past um, on on a couple of areas of focus here. So the first question I've got for you, Amin, is it's just a general lob uh, to get the conversation started about the Suns and looking at this year's Suns that just finished the year. Um, they have a particular playing style that Jeff Hornacek implemented with the spacing and the stretch four and the stretch five as much as possible. Um, does that kind of having a real style on your team um, help your offseason, make it easier because of the focus that you've got, or does it make it more difficult because your choices are more narrow on the kind of guys you can bring in? 
Uh, it, it it makes it easy. I think it makes it easier when you have an identity that you, you the uh, very definite identity that you are fitting pieces into, and makes the job much more straightforward. You know, you can eliminate guys that just don't fit what you're trying to do and what you who you are. Every team does. Every good team does. And if you look at uh, what the Lakers did when they were running triangle, the type of players they were looking for. When you look at San Antonio, the type of players that they look for. Utah, the Jerry Sloan, the type of players that you look for. Once you have a, a style and an identity that is good, you know that it works, you know that it's successful, it's easier to plug and play. At the same time, you have to, you know, there is a court of public opinion that you have to explain to people why certain people don't fit what you do. And again, when you're successful, it's easy to explain away why, oh, so and so was a bad fit for us. Um, but then, it, you know, you always have to deal with those questions, especially when those players go on to and get, become successful elsewhere. I'll give you a great example. In the 2008 draft, he drafted Rodman Lopez over Maurice State, DeVille McGee, and Roy Hibbert. I think those are the, the next three picks after in some yep. order. And, of course, everyone's, oh, how could you guys pass on Hibbert? And, well, you look at Hibbert, and even before all the problems he's had, you know, in the last second half of the season or so. But just look at his, the style of his play. It is very uh, half-court, not a lot of changing ends, definitely not a lot of movement in the pick-and-roll defense area, right? He's not going to show hard. He just stays and hangs back. Well, obviously, that wasn't very congruent with the style of play that we had, particularly the Mario Sotomayor. We needed someone who could guard the pick-and-roll and guard the post and all those things. So Hibbert just didn't fit what we were trying to do. Um, and he didn't factor into our equation. Does that mean Roy Hibbert is trash? No. Although, again, he's, he's had a pretty struggle uh, second half of the year. But, but it's not an indictment of Hibbert. It's more about our style is this. And he doesn't fit our style. And if we brought him here, he'd just look bad. Uh, so, so, again, that, I think that, that's a pretty nice, simple example of... How having a defined identity makes it easier to make uh, decisions. But it does narrow down your options, so you have fewer players to negotiate with. Yes, but again, it's not, I mean, there aren't too many styles that get so specific that you've eliminated 90% of, of the talent pool, right? So I'm does it make it... Does it make it an easier sell to the player to, because it's so easy to explain to them how they will fit when you have identified somebody you want? Oh, yeah. So, so obviously the draft is not an issue because they're picking them and unless Steve Flair, yeah, right. they got to come. But from free agency, absolutely. So Channing Fly was a guy like that. Channing Fly was a guy who didn't play a lot in Portland. It was on the outskirts of that rotation. Uh, didn't get along because he played for a coach that did not I don't want to say accept, but did not recognize his talents. For us, we're like, look, Channing, we know you're a great shooter. We don't care that you don't post up. We want you to come here and shoot threes and shoot a lot of threes. Steve Nash will find you, and we think you're the perfect counterbalance for Amari Stoudemire in the pick and roll as a guy to stretch defense and all that. And for Channing, obviously him being from Phoenix didn't, didn't hurt. Him growing up a Suns fan didn't hurt. But us giving him a vision of exactly how he's going to fit in our offense, um, and and uh, and how we were going to be successful with him, 
that meant a lot to him. Uh, flip side, I can imagine that the pitch they gave to Michael Beasley must have been pretty similar. Obviously, I was after I was gone, but I imagine they probably told him the same thing. Look, we can use your talent. If you can score, and, and again, that was enough for Michael Beasley to come. Also, six and a half million dollars. <laughs> when nobody else there was some green involved yeah, in that too. Yeah, there, there, there are other ways you can incent people to come, but but definitely when you have a, a defined vision for how they are going to not only be successful individually, but I think players players want to win. They, they want to go somewhere where they're going to play. They're going to make a lot of money, but they also want to know that they're going to win. And uh, and again, when you have a defined style and you can pitch that to people, it's a lot easier to make that pitch than, oh, we think you're awesome, and you're gonna play a lot for us, and, and that's it. You know, it, it just it doesn't. It's not as uh, as a uh, lot uh, airtight a sell. So um, the Suns, obviously, uh, the Suns won 48 games this year, but they, as you pointed out so eloquently, with easily outscoring the Suns' playoff uh, numbers for the last four years in just one basket. Um, to have the Suns turned around, do you think if you were working in the Suns front office, would you say that you've turned around the loser mentality to potential free agents and that you've shown that this new coach and this new team can win games, or do you think there's still going to be some skepticism on the flashes in the pan? No, no, that, that's all changed. When they cleaned house, when they got rid of all the negative elements in the front office and the negative elements on the bench and all that, this is a new team. I think when you're a prospective free agent, you're not looking at it and well, Ron Pavey's still there. Those guys don't care. They don't know, Who's the GM? Oh, it's the guy from Boston, and he won the championship with Danny Ainge. Blah, blah, blah. And who's the coach? Well, it's Jeff Hornacek. You know, he was a, uh, a really good player in his day, and, and they won 48 games. And who's on the team? Oh, Warren Rodgers, every NBA player you talk to the same thing. I love watching this kid play. He's so exciting. He's one of the, the best point guards in the game. Uh, Kevin Durant said he should have been an all-star. Um, you know, when, when you talk about all those things, and everybody so obviously is, again, another really uh, exciting, up-tempo type player. And then the style of player they play. Again, the defined style. When people think Phoenix Suns, they think that running gun and stretch and all that stuff. And again, that's, that's something that ties into the history, right? That's Historically, the Suns have always been a, an up-tempo, run-and-gun type team. You know, whether it was with Steve and Amari and Sean, or whether it was uh, going back to KJ and Barkley and, 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 and Tom Chambers, or going all the way back and, and Hornacek and before Barkley, and, and then even going further back when you think about Alvin Adams being really the first small ball five, probably, or one of the, the early predecessors for the small ball five, someone who, you know, plays center but runs up and down and can face up and can shoot and throw a stat sheet across the across the different categories. That's always an identity. So we did a good job of tapping back into that identity. So again, it's not that this that they won games this year. It's not that it's a, a fairly new cast of characters who are making decisions. It's also the idea that they have a defined style that this is how they've always played there. And if I'm a free agent and I like playing that way, that's an attractive proposition for me. All right, cool. So let me throw out a couple of names, and you just give me your first blush, your first reaction of hot and cold toward whether this player would be a good fit 
in the sun system as defined this year with with Jeff Hornacek. Uh, first name would be uh, Gordon Hayward. Hi. Definitely. So you're, you're talking about a guy with, well, anytime you talk about a perimeter player with great length, he's 6'8", and uh, can put the ball on the floor, pretty good passer. Uh, good shooter until this year. It's kind of tough to call him a, uh, a very good shooter after he had the year that he had this year, but I think a lot of that has to do with the burden of the offense being on him, and he's not that good, not yet at least, where he can uh, create his own offense and, and be efficient at it and uh, be a focal point in that sense. But in terms of what he would have to be for Phoenix, I think he's a, he's a great fit. Okay. Um, and and we're not going to talk money or anything like this at this point. I'm just talking yeah. about fit. We're just so talking about basketball fit, yeah. Yeah. Okay, now, Greg Monroe. Cold. Uh, again, this is not an indictment on Greg Monroe. I think he's a fantastic player. He's a very skilled, big, uh, high post, low post, uh, very polished offensive game. But he doesn't shoot, so it's all got to be about probably 14 feet and in. And he's not really an up-and-down player. And he's not much of a defensive player either. So you're talking about, okay, we're going to bring in a guy who's not going to help us defensively and doesn't isn't really at his best running up and down, and, oh, by the way, offensively, you know, he's got to be the guy close to the basket, but we still have to play him alongside someone who can shoot. I think those are just too many kind of incongruent things to the style of players they want to play, combined with, uh, with obviously, the money it would probably cost, even though we're not talking about money. The other thing also, he's not a great athlete. So it's not like he's, well, we'll put him in pick and roll and just throw it up to the sky and he'll dunk on everybody. That's not the kind of player he is, so... It just makes it hard with the current style and identity to fit someone like that in. Okay. Uh, Chris Bosch. Oh, terrific. So, you know, I mean, basically they ran all of, a lot of the stuff that we ran uh, in Phoenix under Mike D'Antoni and Alvin Gentry uh, out in uh, Miami. Incredible pick and roll player. High level defender. Probably the best defensive, or one of the best defensive forwards. Uh, whenever we talk about the best power forwards in the game, the Chiefs are the ball on Aldridge, Kevin Love, Blake Griffin. Uh, Chris Bosch is right there with those guys. Uh, and the best defender out of all, uh, great length. And he's got the size to play small ball center if you want to do that, which, of course, to Phoenix, that would help and that would fit. Um, so, you know, Bosch is definitely very, very hot. All right, last one for now, uh, Lance Stevenson. Oof. <sighs> Lukewarm um, to warm. On paper, he's a great fit, right? He, he, he's a combo guard. He can put on the floor. He can create. Uh, he's a pretty good defensive player. He's an excellent rebounder for a wing, which, again, if you're a small ball, if you want to play small ball, that's one of the things you need. You need gang rebounding. So, Dragic is a pretty good rebounder. If you want your wing to be, you know, P.J. Tucker is a pretty good rebounder. That's why... You know, that was one of the things that helped out a lot this year. Lance fits that, right? He, he rebounds. He can help overcome that size disadvantage you have by playing everybody up a position. The problems with Lance are shooting-wise, he's not terrible, but, you know, I think this, either last year or this year, these are the best couple of years shooting, and even then it wasn't anything to write home about. And then obviously he's a, he's, he's a little imbalanced, right? And we've actually seen that now in the second half of the season, that when he's focused, and he's locked in, he's really good, but he's easily distracted. He's 
distracted by things that are happening on the court. You might be distracted by things that are happening off the court. I don't know if the Suns have that strong voice either right. in the locker room or in the coach's office or even anywhere in the organization. You know, Indiana has Larry Bird. Larry Bird can give them a talking to, bring them to the office. The Suns don't have that. And, again, that's just, I mean, I, I don't know any way to say I don't mean to seem mean. To be honest, even in our heyday, four, you know, five, six years ago, I don't know if we had anyone like that back then either. So, um, so I, yeah. in that sense, I'm not, I'm not as sold on him as, as a good fit. But basketball-wise, if he was just a, a if this was NBA 2K, we were playing a video game. Yeah, if you inserted him, he'd be great. Yeah, that's the problem. Is too many people want to, uh, you know, put together a basketball team based on how they would play him in, in NBA 2K, and you don't think about the personalities and the mixing and. Who can control who and who needs to be controlled and, and who can yeah. just do their job. And, and I think the other thing to remember is you can take chances on guys like that when you have the proven track record of success. When, you, when that identity is rock solid, when, when it's almost unspoken, you walk into that locker room, we don't have to talk about it. The guys police their own. And even though some had a good year last year and they're starting to build that, they don't have it. You know, in concrete yet. You know, the the, the cement is still wet. So I, that's why you know I don't know if they're ready for that kind of challenge. Okay. All right. Now um, switch gears just a little bit, and I want to just talk about the behind the scenes of a front office for a couple of questions, and then we'll go into a little bit of draft stuff so Chris can uh, not fall asleep too much and, and get back more involved in this. Um, but on the first uh, first question about uh, behind the scenes of a front office, when when you're doing uh, free agent negotiations with a player, or you you know you've identified somebody you want to be your top priority, and uh, you know let's assume you didn't just offer him a bucket load of money uh, at 12:01 a.m. on July 1st that nobody else was going to come close to offering, and you just take it. Well, no, that, that, it's worked out in the past, right? <laughs> but yeah, 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 yeah. But let's assume you actually want to get a smart deal. Um, how much do you really know about the negotiations that a team or that a player is having with other teams? Um, you you have an idea because usually they, a lot of times the agent will play that up, right? Oh, we're talking to so-and-so, we're talking to so-and-so. Channing, I remember the Channing Fly negotiation was like that where... Uh, he had an offer on the table for full mid-level, and we didn't want to go that far. Um, and so whoa, a lot of negotiation was centered around, look, this is the perfect place. We found him when nobody wanted him, and, and we, we made him basically a household name, and this and that. And, and uh, I think at some point we almost had the deal done, and then we made the mistake of letting the negotiation drag on and by dragging on more contracts got signed around the league and that basically inflated his price so I take with Darko Milicic and Amir Johnson and I want to say uh, was it Drew Good and all those guys signed and it's like mid-level yeah full mid-levels or, or about that that price range and so Channing Vagan was like look he's better than all these guys and he's right and, and that's the unfortunate part of the negotiation process is you're not just negotiating a price that works for you or for works for them or that he's got 
uh, an offer here or an offer there, but you're also negotiating against the market. So there are other costs that are happening, and these are going to affect the price within the 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 lifespan of the negotiation. And and that's why a big part of the agency is the negotiation. It's actually the preparation that goes into it. And uh, that's something that I think the Suns do right now. They do very well uh, with Alon Abbey and Assistant General Manager Trevor Buckstein. They, they do a lot of research and into what a player's value is, what um, who are the comparable players uh, of that talent, of that age, or whatever. What are they expected to get? What did they get last summer? The guys are comparable to this guy. Historically, other than or guys in the same situation, so he's a European guy coming over on his first deal uh, as a free agent. He's a guy coming off of restricted free agency. You know, so they'll go through all these types of different scenarios and create all these comps, and then figure out, okay, this is the price range we're comfortable with. We want to get him at this. We'll go up to this, and they do a good job of that. Unless someone's really got the hots for someone like Michael Beasley, which case they just throw out a number. <laughs> And then everyone else goes, what? <laughs> um, so, uh, speaking of that, um, how how often is it that the front, uh, front office of a particular team who's interested in a particular player finds out, along with the rest of the world, um, that they lost that player to another team? Or do you generally almost always know first and then the public knows? I think, I think a lot of times you know first. A lot of times agents will tell you, look, Thank you, and we appreciate it, but we're going to go in a different direction. That's so even with even with the advent of Twitter and yeah, Adrian Wojnarowski, unless unless you're talking about guys like even though even Dwight Howard did that, Dwight Howard called everybody. Um, I think LeBron was like the last secret, maybe in in, in this league as far as where's he going to sign. The last mm-hmm. guy who really kept it a secret up until the last moment was LeBron. <laughs> Most of the other guys. Built, and that's the that's the common currency too. Because remember, as an agent, you know, as a player, you might say, "Well, I'll never see you guys again." But as an agent, I got to work with these guys. I still have draft picks. I got other free agents. I I don't want to burn that bridge or make them look silly or put them in a in a compromising situation. It's only fair. Like you know, we don't have to take their deal, right? But you want to give them the heads up so that they can also move on and and move on to other kind of free agent options. And then also again. I'm an agent, and I've got other clients. If I'm a Bill Duffy, if I'm an Arn Tellum, I probably have other guys that I'm interested in getting the Phoenix. It serves, it, it's in my interest to say, look, Al Horford is not coming. But we have so-and-so, and he's really interested, so that that, mm-hmm. that plays in. Okay. Um, okay, so let's let's shift over to the to the draft. Um, so the Suns have have three picks in the first round here. I know they're going to try to trade them for you know for a star or whatever, but let's just say they don't. Is there a player in college who stands out to you more than anybody that you would think, oh man, if you got on the Suns, that would be uh, huge for this player and huge for the Suns? Uh, that's kind of an unfair question. This is one of those ones where uh, you know. So I say Andrew Wiggins, that really doesn't count, right? If I say Joe Embiid, that doesn't count. Well, it's somebody who might be available after after ten, you know. After ten, all right. Um, like Adrian Payne's name. Adrian Payne would be Adrian Payne would be great because he's a great rebounder. He's uh, he's a much improved shooter. 
he's, a, he's an overall much improved player. And then when you talk about Michigan State guys, they have a reputation of being tough players, good defensive players, that Randolph not included. But most of them have good defensive acumen and um, work ethic towards it. And uh, so that's good. Again, Payne's ability to pick and pop. He's a great length. He can finish at the rim. I, I look at him as a guy that can play alongside Channing Fry or maybe down the line replace Channing Fry as far as being a stretch big for you. So he, he'd be a great fit. Um, uh, way, way farther down when you talk about some of those later picks. Kay David Daniel from Clemson. Again, not as someone who can come in and play right away, but uh, kind of in that P.J. Tucker mold, only higher upside. Defender, tough guy, rebounds well, great shot blocker, active hand. Um, Zach Levine, as a shooter, obviously, you know, in the, in the words of Cotton Fitzsimmons, you can never have too many shooters, so Zach Levine as a catch-and-shoot guy, the third guard off the bench. I'm still not sold on him handling the ball for me full-time, but uh, just as a talent, as a scoring talent, he's a guy that intrigues me. Again, further down the draft, uh, if you're looking at second-round picks, Isaiah Austin is a guy that everything about him says no, but as far as his production versus his potential, but the potential says I'm getting it for a second-round pick. Why not? Swing for the fences. You know, he's a guy that could turn out to be uh, a pretty, pretty high-reward guy. And if the risk is second-round pick, or maybe even that uh, that Indiana pick, maybe that's a little too high. But, but uh, you know, so, somewhere along those range, you got to start taking some swings because the numbers say that pick usually doesn't turn out anyway. So you might as well uh, try and get someone that can turn out to be something. Uh, so is that what um, Gold, is that what Golden State kind of did with uh, Festus Ezeli and Draymond Green? Were those guys well, pretty highly uh, talented but not productive? Yeah, I would say Ezeli was was more of a safe pick. Look, he's big, he rebounds well, he's a good defensive player. You can't catch a cold, but at wherever they drafted him, which is end of the, end of the first, at that pick. Like okay, you know, big deal. If we get some guy who can rebound and block shots and, and anchor our defense and make us a better defensive team, but his big sin is he can't catch. Well, guess what? If you could catch, he wouldn't be down there. He'd be up at you know ten or, or even higher than that. Uh, Draymond Green was a, was a different kind. Also, more of a safe bet in the sense that he's undersized. He knows how to play. Um, he's multi-talented. He can go inside or outside. His, again, his upside probably isn't that high, right? Uh, but we know he can play. So you bring him in and you say, worst-case scenario, he's a guy that's going to make our team tougher. He's going to make us a smarter team and practice a better practice. High side is he can come in and play for us and be a rotation player. And I think he, he's been everything that they thought he uh, that they could have hoped and raised. Okay. So, uh, real quick, I mean, with, with Adrian Payne, I'm going to take the counter-argument here because that seems to be just the popular sexy pick that national pundits and local fans are just like, oh, Adrian Payne, six foot ten guy that can shoot. Obviously, he's a dead ringer for a Suns rotation guy. But on the other side of the fence, their biggest weakness, the Suns team, most people would agree, interior defense, toughness, rebounding. That, that I'm not saying Zach Randolph, you mentioned his name earlier, but that kind of player that can be kind of change of pace. Obviously style, you want to get a guy to click, but is Adrian Payne just more of 
the reoccurring product that they already have with Markeith Morris and Channing Fry, and he's kind of is another guy that fits that mold as the four or five. W- would you not maybe want to go and do something a little bit different? Maybe get a guy that's a little tougher, a little stronger, more on the rebounding side. Well, here's here's the thing. When it comes, first of all, I, I'm, I'm not mistaken. I think he's decent rebounding percentage. Is we go by rebounding percentages, his rebounding numbers are, are solid. But but more importantly. The guy that you named, Marquise Morris and Channing Fry. Channing Fry has a player option uh, that he, he can opt out for, and he's probably going to get, if he does opt out, being one of the few, forget shooting big men, few shooters on the market, he's probably going to get paid. Marquise Morris is going into his extension year. He, he, you know, he's going to be eligible for extension July 1st all the way up to October 31st. After that, he goes into the final year of his deal, and then after that, restricted free agency. So, even if Channing doesn't opt out, both of your guys that can do those things that you're talking about are going to be, for sure, free agents 2015. You have to have a contingency plan in case one or both of them just aren't around because of crazy contract demands. And if you're talking about having a guy who is going to be on rookie scale for the next four years, that's a pretty good contingency plan because at least I know, okay, I've got a nice, low-cost option in the bag. Uh, they can come in and do those things if I'm not able to retain either one of those guys. But I think Chris asked a really good philosophical question. Uh, there's a lot. There's a big natural tendency uh, to actually want to use the off season to fill in your gaps rather than backfill in case of free agency in the future. Um, so what you know? What talk about the pros and cons of trying to draft guys who fill in what the Suns are bad at? Well, I, I think it's all about where you are as a team. Uh, to go back to my Robin Lopez example, the guys, the other guys, like I said, Roy Hibbert, not a big shit, and the other two guys are Maurice Spates and uh, Javel McGee. Maurice Spates, we felt like, was Amari reincarnated, only not as good. So offense, great offensive talent, defense, completely clueless. So if we're trying to get better as a team, for us at that time, we're thinking championship. Our winner championship is now. It was more important for us to fill a role for someone who was going to be that subsidizer for Amari on defense. The guy was going to be our defensive anchor and, and be able to guard all the guys that we couldn't guard. So, Maurice State out the window. Javel McGee, it came down to, you know, a combination of some of that and some of that was just personality stuff. So, you needed toughness, and we just felt like Mickey wasn't as tough as, as Lopez. Lopez, when they went head-to-head in the, in the pre-draft workout, and again, that's not sure that pre-draft workouts determine everything in life, but you could see that Robin had that, <laughs> at the time we didn't know him, but it was that rage, right? And that's what makes him such a great defensive player, that he's completely unintimidated by anybody. Um, you look at the way he played Dwight Howard in the series, and Dwight Howard started that one game out of his mind and any other player I think probably would have felt deflated and kind of gave up and Robin is just that kind of guy who just kept picking and kept in as the game wore on he just beat up on him until Dwight was pretty much ineffective at the end uh, so where you are as a team factors a lot and, and for the Suns again if you have hopes of being a free agent player over these next couple of summers because the way things are set up the last thing you want to do is be stuck in a position where they're like, oh, man, we have to keep so-and-so because if we lose them, then we don't have anything, which is kind of what happened to us 
uh, summer 2010, is that once Amari was out of the door, we knew he wasn't going to come back. It was, uh, we can't lose Channing. If we lose Channing, then we don't have anything, and we're going back all the way, you know, into the Stone Age. And in that regard, so we got to look forward, we got to be, you know, forward-thinking. Goran Dragic is, you know, he's not old, but he's not a young player anymore. His contract also comes up here pretty soon. He's playing on one of the best bargain contracts in the NBA. And I know from his mouth he had a better deal from Charlotte that he could have signed, but he came back here because this was home for him. Is that also something that you got to look at if you're Ryan McDonough? Maybe not necessarily in this draft, but in general free agency, this draft, trades, of finding another playmaker, another piece to the puzzle. So you're drafting at 14 and you have Adrian Payne, but you also might have maybe a Marcus Smart or a Tyler Ennis on the board. That's also got to be enticing for them to be able to look ahead and go, hey, this is might be that guy that plays next to Eric for the next three to four years after Goran's gone. Right, and that's a good point. You know, the biggest thing is, will Eric be here? That, that's the problem. It's kind of like the little conundrum. There's so many, it's like an onion, there's so many layers to it. So is Eric going to be here is the question. If he is, how much is it going to cost us to keep him? Can we keep him and keep Goran? Is it going to be a, a situation where we, where we keep them, but then as soon as we pay them, we know there's no way going to keep going? Um, if not, uh, then if it's, if it's that case, then you have to ask yourself, is it worth keeping one or the other? Who? I mean, because then if, you could say, well, Bledsoe's younger, so we're going to keep Bledsoe. But if you have a pretty strong feeling that Braun is the better player and he's going to be a... I mean, he's entering his prime now. So to, I'm not mistaken, today was his birthday. Uh, he turned 28. So 28, 29, 30, 31, these are the prime years of his career. That's four years. He can opt out of his deal next summer. Uh, maybe a three-year deal gets it done. Maybe he doesn't. I, I don't know. It all depends on what the market's looking at at the time. But those are all kind of questions you have to ask yourself. But, yes, maybe drafting a guy is a good idea because either way you're going to have to guard for either Bledsoe being gone or Dragic being gone. So, uh, so let's just shift real uh, real quick then to um, the prospects for R.C. Goodwin. So he was brought in last year as a combo point guard. I don't see the point guard part of him, but uh, he definitely can be a guy who can score off the bench. Um, what's his ceiling? Is there likely his likely ceiling in the NBA. Uh, you know who I think about who was also described in the same way when he came out in the draft was uh, Jamal Crawford a long time ago. People don't remember this. Jamal Crawford was actually to be a point guard. He was supposed to be like a 6'5 point guard with a candle and a scoring guard. The time before scoring guards were really kind of smiled upon as they are now. Um, but like Archie, again, he was a young guy came out early, I think he came out as a sophomore. But like Archie, the same thing. So he comes very apparent after a while that even though he can handle, even though he'll throw some passes, you can't count on him to be your point guard, not full time. So then eventually they just figure out, well, we just keep him as a shooting guard and he's much better in that role. I think eventually the same thing will happen with Archie Gibson is that there's going to be some the old college try to get him to be a point guard, but I don't know if you can teach those things. There aren't too many guys in the history of the game who learned how to play point guard after they got here. Usually they've, they've done it before. So um, so in that sense, I think he's going to probably be a scoring guard. And then depending on how well he defends, 
if he can become a reliable defensive player, uh, he'll be a starter. If not, he'll probably be a specialist that comes off the bench and just gets busted. Now, didn't he come into the NBA, though, as somebody with uh, all the physical skills to be a good defensive player, and he's got, you know, he's, he's got a reputation of being a hard worker, pays attention and all that, so it seems like he would end up as a good defensive player. Now, now, now let me let me describe, let me, what you just described, I'll give you the same thing. All the physical skills and hard worker, sounds like a guy that we had a power forward here for a time. Oh, he's a really good player. <laughs> he, was a, he was a damn good player, but... You know, defense is a little bit more than that. It's a little bit more. I think there's an acumen part of it that a lot of people uh, disregard, and it's a lot why why we are suckered sometimes into thinking some guys are good defenders and they're really not. Because uh, you, you know, it, it's defense. There's two there's two major facets to be. One is can I guard my own mind? man? That's one thing. But the other thing is. Can I operate within a team defensive scheme? And that's very different. Um, and that to me is, is usually the litmus on whether a guy's a good defender. Because I can be draped over a guy all day long, and then, you know, all types of things are happening. When we talk about guarding the pick and roll, it's rarely a two on two situation. You're using everybody to guard that. So, uh, Again, it's it's one thing to say, oh yeah, you know, he, he's long and he's athletic and he's quick. Of course, he'll be a good defender, but that's something. I mean, again, Jamal Crawford, lightning quick, explosive athleticism in his prime, couldn't guard his shadow. So uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't pencil him into that all defensive team just yet. <laughs> okay, well, let's shift to the other uh, Suns rookie now. So okay, so I'm, the way I take it from your answer on Goodwin is that. Him being on the team would have no impact on whether you backfill Dragic or Bledsoe with a rookie. Do I take that right? Yes, yes. Uh, if, if I, it all depends on who I'm taking. If I'm taking someone that I'm high on, so let's say by happenstance, the Suns jump all the way up to three. Um, and for whatever reason, Dante Exum just wows everybody. Uh, I, I would not say, well, I can't take Dante Exum because I have. Archie did win in the way. That's just, that's silly. Dante Exum is... is yeah, but what about a Zach Levine? What about a Zach Levine or Harvey? Yeah, I, 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 th- I think he's different, though. He's different. He's, he, um, he does things that Archie can't do, and Archie does things that he can't do. So there's no reason not to take them both, not to have them both. I mean, it's not like, uh, well, you know, we're down three. We need, we need a, a quick three here. I'm not going to turn to Archie. and like, oh, should I take Archie or should I take Zach? Right? Or, or, hey, man, they're really trapped and going on these things. I need someone to come in and break, you know, help break these presses or whatever. I'm not going to turn to Zach. I'm like, oh, you know. So, so that not so much uh, is going to factor in as far as being an impediment to me taking them. Okay. So let's go to um, Alex Lynn. I have a couple of different questions on Alex Lynn. Uh, the first one, along the same lines as we were just asking about Goodwin, are, um, uh, there was there was illusion last year by Ryan McDonough as to one of the reasons he chose a center with the number five pick last year was because he was also looking at the 2014 draft board and he didn't see a center that really you know wowed everybody because Joel Embiid wasn't as wasn't supposed to be as good as he turned out uh, to be and there wasn't anybody else near the top. 
is um, is is the presence of the presence of Alex Glenn on the team. Uh, does that, and still only being barely 21 years old next year, does that impact? Does that take anybody off your draft board in the 2014 draft? No, because there really isn't anyone who's just like Alex Glenn. Right, but 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 I I think again, I think. I don't want to seem like I'm burying the kid because you're right. He's only 21. And he missed so much time due to injury, so much developmental time before the season, which is very important for rookies. So I can't write him off. Definitely can't write him off. But at the same time, he hasn't shown anything to give you this overwhelming confidence. Like, there's no way. Think about this. Detroit at Greg Monroe, what we just talked about, was a pretty good player. And he's still on draft Andre Drummond. You know, because there's not. It's right. You know, it's, you just take the best know. available. Yeah, exactly. I don't. In some in cases like that, if you've got a talent, a real talent out there, you get them, and then you figure it out. Um, I, I don't know if you, you you without the benefit of knowing. Oh, Landon, this guy's a monster, and you guys just don't know it. Without the benefit of knowing that, maybe they do know that. I can only go by what I see in games, but they see them practice. They see them doing film, they see him in the weight room with the trainers and all that. So they may know stuff, I mean, they definitely know stuff that we don't know. And that can color that, that decision. But based on the way he's played, again, I'm not killing him. I think he's going to be a very productive NBA player, but not productive to the point where I will never even, you know, uh, acknowledge another big in the draft because I've got Alex Lennon. Okay. All right, well, let me then, let me circle back to the discussion on, on on Len in terms of his fit on the team. A year ago, you mentioned to me that um, he's possibly now, of course, the timing of him being drafted and then Hornacek installing his, his type of team and offense. Um, those were, you know, those were a little backwards. But you were thinking Len was not a perfect fit for the way Hornacek wants to play. Right. Has that changed at all? Yeah, he's better at it than I thought he'd be. But I, I still think a lot of the, the concerns I had are still applicable, which is, again, uh, his offense was, or, you know, it basically was non-existent, right? It was all putbacks and stuff like that. But in terms yeah. of him getting the touches he needs to go into the moves that he wants to do and develop his offensive game, he didn't get that. He really didn't have that. Every, every time he got the ball, it was like, okay, if he got the ball and it wasn't off an offensive rebound or something like that, it was, let me get this up really quick because I never know when I'm going to get it again. And I, and I don't know if that's good for developing uh, his skill set. Conversely, conversely, when we had this conversation, I thought the stuff would be terrible. And now if that had happened this year while they were terrible, that would be really bad. But they were a really good team fighting for a playoff spot. So, those things fall on the back burner, right? Whereas if they were a 25 win team, yes, you got to figure out how to get Alex as many touches as possible and figure out how to pin him in and gear the offense towards him. And guys, you got to slow down. But that wasn't, you know, the uh, the 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 objective, right? The objective was we got to win games, and when you got to win games, that stuff kind of falls to the wayside. Okay, but as far as you don't see him as a do you, do you still see him as a bad fit? Uh, no, I mean not not necessarily. Again, 
not for what they're asking of her. Yeah, I, okay. you know, it's, a, it's a wishy-washy answer because it all depends on where they're going as a team. If he's going to be a screener, rebounder, uh, shot blocker, and then just garbage bucket guy, sure, he's a good fit. But if you drafted him at top five, so obviously there was higher hopes for him to be something more than that. In order for him to be something more than that, he's got to get the time to develop and the time to practice the things he's developed. Is he going to get that as long as the team is competitive and as long as the team plays a style of play where it's hard for him to get the touches? I don't know if those things are going to happen. Okay. Uh, right, by, the way, uh, by the way, and, and the other part of it is, well, there's, there's, a, there's a guy in front of him who, who plays pretty well, too. Right. And so, Miles Plumley is on a rookie deal. Miles Plumley is a better rebounder. Uh, he's a better athlete. He runs up and down better. He finishes around the rim better. He doesn't have the shooting touch or maybe the polish, and I'll use that word very vaguely or very loosely, but he doesn't have those things that Land does, but he does all these things that you need your big to do right now so much better. So, And he's a rookie. He just finished his second year, so he's got at least two more years of this, barring him getting traded. When is when going to get those minutes and those touches and all those things? It's it's kind of again it's layered. It's not just oh you know they play up and down and that's not good for them. But it's, they play up and down and they're trying to win and they got a guy in front of them that does all those things and helps them win. And by the way, he's also really young also, so it's not like he's an aging guy or he's coming up on his contract now. It's gonna be a while before this guy's stepping up stepping up the door. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you for that feedback. Uh, so, uh, Chris, before I ask one last question um, that's not about the draft, do you have any other draft-related questions or Suns-related questions you want to ask? Um, semi-draft-related, semi-free agent-related. I just want to get a means take on this in general because I can't sit next to him in uh, in the center court 20 rows back at a Suns game right now because we're not in the playoffs. But if you're the Phoenix Suns, and this is not a slight on P.J. Tucker in the slightest, very talented guy for what he does. Maximizes his talent, I should say, is probably the better uh, better usage. Do they need an upgrade there when you look at it from an offensive standpoint, what he brings to the table and kind of the lack and the void that they have there offensively and also because of the fact that he very well could be gone this summer as well. Some team might blow his socks off and end up giving him an offer the Suns aren't willing to match. How big of a question is the P.J. Tucker conundrum that I think not really anybody's talking about? I think it's a fairly big question because, again, like you said, you don't know what's going to happen in free agency. So you have to address some sort of contingency plan, whether it's via free agency or whether it's via draft. <clears throat> and he's not getting any younger. That's, that's something that, uh, another thing, it's not like Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green or these guys uh, who are young guys, you know, okay, they'll be able to do this for the next seven or eight years. Although T.J. Tucker, this is probably going to be his first and last money free agency deal uh, so he's not taking any discount I know he said oh I'd be a fool to leave Phoenix and all that stuff but we heard that before from a guy named Tim Thomas <laughs> and, and July 1 midnight hit and his agent said uh, 24 million dollars over 4 years from the Clippers you have 30 minutes to match and that's how it goes because that's how it goes sometimes so so if you're the Suns, you can't be in this situation. TJ would never let us down. And then you get there, and, and someone's giving him full mid-level, and you got to think to yourself, I'm going to pay full mid-level for this guy. Um, because the market is set for those types of players, defensive players, uh, you know, wing defenders. 
if you look at Danny Green, if you look at Tony Allen, Chris Pondexter, uh, Courtney Lee, Trevor Reza, Trevor, well, yeah, Trevor Reza, I think is a higher level than a lot of those guys. Uh, not maybe not a better defender than Tony Allen, but Trevor Reza gives you a much vaster package than Tony Allen. Tony Allen gives you defense, and that's it. And Trevor Reza gives, can be a catch and shoot guy. He can handle a little. He's got the length and you know and, and the size to, to guard some fours. He gives you a lot of options uh, that Tony Allen probably doesn't. I'm not saying he's a better defender. Tony Allen's a, a way better defender, but Trevor Reza has more bonus for him in life that will inflate his uh, his price point. So uh, those are the the things you have to factor when you're looking at it. And when you look at it, say, so, well, if Danny Green got four. And Tony Young got four and a half. Of course, you've gone you got three and three quarters. How can I justify paying P.J. Tucker, who I would think a lesser player than all those guys, how can I justify paying him more? And, and once you said, I can't pay him more than that, then you better have a, a, a plan B because right now you look at that roster, who is the plan B? They don't really have that tough, pretty wing defender other than P.J. Tucker. All right. Okay, one last question. Um, and again, I'm, uh, I'm going to go back to a year ago. A year ago, you were pretty sure that Eric Bledsoe and Goran Dragic would not be a long-term combo. Right. Let's assume the money works out. Okay, right. let's just talk simply about the basketball court. Um, on the basketball court, is this a long-term solution? I think, okay, so first of all, obviously I was wrong. About, about they wouldn't, they wouldn't be. And the the thing that I well no no I don't, I don't want I'm not, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus you were talking no, about no, no no but it's it's true I didn't I was not confident in that combination working and I neglected one really major point which is both of those guys had basically careers worth of experience of not being the full time point guard so about Bledsoe he played alongside Chris Paul in, in with the Clippers and then before that at Kentucky he played alongside John Wall so he never really had the experience of. 30 minutes game, I have to have the ball in my hands all the time, right? And then Rogic, obviously, played alongside Steve, and then he went to Houston, he played alongside Lowry. And so he never had that experience of, I have to have the ball in my hands 30 minutes game all the time. So now you bring both of these guys that are used to playing off ball, they're used to playing with the ball in their hands, so that really helped that chemistry come along. The thing I question about, and I still question long term, is they're still asking one of them to guard somebody who's much bigger than they are. And the type of abuse that that and the effort it takes to, to, to do that has a uh, has has a, a long term effect. And I don't know long term. So we saw that a little bit. Now I know Lethal got hurt most of the year, so that that fact is in as well. But we saw that at the end of the year Dragic looked exhausted. He just looked tired. And part of that is because man, you're running around and you're chasing and you're bumping around with Bigger guards, that's what takes the toll. There's wear and tear involved. So, is the solution then if you're gonna, if you're a team and you've decided these two guys are going to be your highest paid backcourt guys for the next four years, um, do you bring in a, a a big, tough, defensive shooting guard who can rotate? You know, defender who can rotate in there and take that other guy and, and give and let one of these dudes take the uh, worst offensive player on the other team? Or or how do you actually make this like, work long-term? As, as a replacement or as a third guy? 
as a third guy. I would bring in a third guy, yeah. Just to kind of alleviate some of those pressures. So, again, this kind of ties into the P.J. Tucker thing. It's not that, right. you know, it, it, you got to have somebody else. It can't be just, oh, we got one guy who guards all the tough defenses. What about the teams that have two? Right. <laughs> you can't you can't you can't go into life uh going like that. So if you look at like Portland right now, they've got two guys. They got Wesley Matthews and then they've got uh Nick Platoon. And to a lesser extent you can say they're all right, but not anymore. But those two guys, so you look at them playing San Antonio, I know they didn't do that tonight, but theoretically I could say Platoon you guard Tony Parker and West Matthews you you got Kwai and then Lillard, you take Danny Green, who really doesn't post up anyway, just a catch-and-shoot guy, that can help you. The Suns don't have that luxury right now. You know, if they're playing the Spurs, P.J. Tucker, you take Tony Parker. Okay, well, who's guarding Kawhi's big ass? Oops. You know what I'm saying? So that, that, makes, that makes life tougher when you have a limited amount of these versatile, big, strong defenders. So let me throw out, uh, Walker, let me ask you then. Who would you add as the third guard this summer to do that kind of thing and to supplement, say you're supplementing a P.J. Tucker. I, 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 without having anything in front of me right now, the, the name that I can think of, he's a free agent, he probably w- won't be that expensive, although he may not want to sign, uh, is a Tabo Cephalosha. Uh, mm. Long, rangy, up until last year, improved three-point shooter. He's at 40% last year. And then he's regressed again this year. He's regressing again this year, but he's the type of guy that coming off the bench can handle the ball some, athletic, you know, fits the style of play. I think he'd be a great fit. Um, but again, you'd have to pay him, and then you have to find somebody else or, or hope to keep TJ Tucker. I don't know if the logistics work for that. I don't know if he'd leave Oklahoma City on the cusp of what they feel like as a championship team to come to Phoenix, which. Even though everything's good and positive and all that, it, it still would be a step back. So that's one guy. It wouldn't even be a starter. I mean, it wouldn't be. And it wouldn't even be a starter, yeah. The other guy I could think of is, again, and this uh, not knowing the logistics of or in the cap right in front of me, but you talk about a guy like Lou Alding. Lou Alding being uh, a starter. I'll throw Lou Alding out, yeah. Yeah, Lou is a starter, and then you keep T.J. Tucker as a backup. That might work as well. Again, if you can make the money work, Assuming that you can afford Bledsoe, the Fort Ding, the Fort Tucker, and still have enough money left over for other free agent goals out there. Yeah, couldn't you even play Lou Ding as a small power forward? Yeah, but I wouldn't. He, he's been worn down a lot over the last two years, and he's not that great of a rebounder. He's okay for a wing, but not he's not like a, not like a Paul George or, or last season or superlative rebounder for a wing that you could get away with playing small ball four. Okay. I'm happy to play small ball four something, just not not expensive. But not regular. Yeah. Alright. That's all the questions I've got. Alright. I came in, I came in with zero questions, so I don't know how uh, how this is no, working I actually, out. I have to run. My wife is on me right now, so I, I got to we're all, we're actually out, and I for, completely forgot until we were out that I had to do this. So no, no, no. Much obliged. I mean, let me let you get back to to life there, and uh, we appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll be talking to you down the road. All right, thanks a lot, guys. All right, thanks, man. Bye.
All right, that was Amin El Hassan. We've had him a few times on the podcast before, um, if you remember, and talking sons in front office and all that fun stuff. So, yeah, I like the, I like the range of knowledge that Amin brings to uh, the table there in terms of being able to randomly bring up Jamal Crawford while talking about Archie Goodwin and, and going into in-depth about how Alex Lynn fits but doesn't fit in the layers. And uh, I mean, Dave, you can probably a- agree with me to an extent on this. A lot of the things that people don't consider are the layers of how things work. It's all about he scored this many points per game and shot this percentage and he's going to make this amount of money. He fits on the Suns, but then there are those layers. Well, and there's also just the, just the desire to fill in holes and assume that all the rest stays the same. So, hey, the Suns don't have enough rebounding. Let's get a big rebounder. Well, yeah, but that can ruin the offense. That can, you know, what if that rebounder is not a good defender? Uh, a lot of people focus on a Greg Monroe because he's got good rebounding numbers, but as Amina said and other people have said in the past, is Monroe is not a good team defender. And so you may give up more points even though you're rebounding the ball. So it's it's there's there are a lot of layers and those don't even have to do with the money. Then there's the money, which Amin was talking about. So yeah, it's it's a tough call to actually build a team and get you know and, and getting the guys to sign for the money you want them to, and then getting them to play the way you want them to play. So uh, yeah, it, it it is definitely a, a a tough thing to do to work in a front office. Yeah, and I think the one thing too is that the Suns are just hoping. I shouldn't say hoping, but you know the fact that they brought in Miles Plumley. I think that that's what their thought process was that he's going to be their version of a junkyard dog that goes out there and rebounds and defends and uses his athleticism, his athletic gifts for that particular niche. I mean, this past season he uses athleticism for rebounding and finishes above the rim. He wasn't a great defender, but he put up good block numbers. wasn't a great rebounder, but he rebounded the ball pretty well. So, I mean, again, second year guy, smart coming out of Duke good basketball IQ, good smart kid in general when you talk to him. So someone that you can definitely see progressing on the sides of the game that you want him to be great at. If he turns into that guy, then you don't need to necessarily worry about going out and getting a Zach Randolph to go be tough and mean and, and rebound and things of that nature. So hopefully that ends up developing that way. He jumped off too quickly. I was going to let him know that the Lance Stevenson guy that the Suns have, we don't have Larry Bird. But Mark West would be that guy that would just put his arm around Lance's shoulders, maybe squeeze the head a little bit tight, and go keep in line, boy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know Mark West enough. I, he always struck me as a guy who was a little bit too quiet for that. But it's possible um, they would do that. But my worry was just Stevenson in the regular locker room when the coaches aren't around. <clears throat> the rest of the team is just so young, and as we saw a year ago, impressionable. Um, at least the the Morris brothers were. Uh, under the old regime, they were malcontents to to a certain extent. They tried, but they didn't try very hard. Whereas this year, under in a much better environment, the Morris brothers were pretty darn consistent and high performers. And the kind of guys you thought you were drafting back in 2011. I mean, this the Marquise Mar- and Marcus were both the guys that everyone thought they were drafting in 2011. And it took them three years to get there. So, you know, that's also saying big men take a while to develop. But um, uh, environment has a lot to do with it for young guys to succeed and bringing in a loose cannon. We saw that with Michael Beasley. Loose cannons don't always do well, and they can bring other people down. Uh, um, so I do worry about Lance Stevenson, and I worry about how much of the Indiana swoon that they've had has to do with Stevenson having such a big role on the team and then, you know, then proportionally having a bigger influence. 
Yeah. And I think that with uh, with Alex Len that we talked about and Archie Goodwin, to kind of touch on them real briefly, a lot of what they're going to be down the road is going to have to do with what they are doing over the next four months. Uh, I'm not inventing anything here. A lot of people talk about the jump from year one to year two when it comes to strength, NBA strength. Um, you know, that preparation, what do you do in between your rookie and your sophomore year? If you put in the work, you can be a viable NBA player. You're going to have a long career. You're going to do some nice things in this league. If you don't put in that work or if you're not able to put in that work for whatever reason, you can end up having kind of a struggle for your for your career there. So those two guys, I mean, Archie Goodwin was every bit 18 years old. I mean, physically, I mean, athlete, he was much more of a, a an athletic beast than I was at 18 years old, but you know he was every bit of an 18 year old mentally, physically. He just wasn't developed there yet. And then Alex Len, you know, for being 21 and being off his legs for for almost a year because of his injury, didn't get a chance to really beef up and strengthen up. But those two guys adding strength, adding you know basketball acumen, watching film, if they put in the right kind of work this summer, that I think is going to determine more of who they're going to be three, four years from now than what they did on the court this year. But then again, I'm not reinventing the wheel. This is something that a lot of people believe and is a proven uh, proven way to develop and watch players. Oh, I think it's very true. And I wrote, you know, for Brightside the other day, and, you know, they didn't have, these guys didn't have a chance to win Rookie of the Year. And, and the way I put it was because winning teams don't play rookies. They just don't. Nobody does. Uh, so it's just, it, it's very rare when a winning team has a rookie playing a big role for them. So they didn't have a chance to shine this year. And I think, uh, uh, this summer will be a big jump. But I also think Len might take another year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Len struggle in the summer league and, and uh, because he'd be trying too hard and thinking too much. He really, really wants to do well, but he might get in his own head and mess himself up. Kind of like Robin Lopez was just horrible in his second summer league. Um, so big men do take a while to develop, whereas Archie Goodwin will probably score 30 points a game this summer. Um, so, but then he'll do it in his own way, and we really got to watch to see if he does play defense and he does make jump shots. Um, but he'll be he'll he'll probably score 25, 28 points a game just um, on on layups and dunks, uh, just because he knows what he's doing out there. So it, it'll be interesting to see how quickly Len develops. But I think people are going to be frustrated with the uh, with that it'll take longer than they than they wanted to. But like you said, we have Miles Plumley who is doing everything that the Suns want of a center for the most part. Uh, sure, you'd love a more talented guy than Miles Plumley, but he checks the boxes for exactly what the Suns want in a center. And if he can continue to develop, then um, that gives Alex Len that much more time. Yeah, yeah, and the one thing draft-wise, and this kind of goes into that as well, that I wanted to ask uh, Amin, just from a value standpoint of being in a front office for a while and looking at the value of this year's draft, I just I don't see it when people bring up the concept of oh just package fourteen and eighteen and I don't know just give some random player off the uh, bench that we don't care about and we're easily going to jump up to the fifth or the second. That was that would have been a great question. Yeah, that just my looking at this draft projections, historical trades, et cetera, so on and so forth. That's just I mean fourteen and eighteen might move you up to eleven or ten. This is a draft where you're not really bridging the gap talent wise, going from fourteen and eighteen having two pieces versus drafting at 10, having one piece. When you look at the talent level, if you're jumping up to seven or six or eight in that little range, that's an area where you're catching one of the last players in this draft that I think have all-star potential. I don't see a guy like Noah Vonley sliding down to 14 for the Suns. He's a guy that 
would fit tremendously for what the Suns do do and what they need to have on the roster. So he's a guy that can step out and knock down a perimeter jump shot, play the pick and roll, but he also can defend. He can also rebound. He's a really big 6'11", almost 7-foot kid. He's a guy that would do the things, you know, check off the other boxes that guys like maybe Miles Plumley or Markeith Morris can't check off and check off all the same ones that they do check off at the same time. So I don't see 14 and 18 moving you up. I mean, 14 and 18 and Miles Plumley and something else, maybe you can get up there, but I don't see that getting you into the range where you get an impact player. Well, plus, um, you know, throwing Miles Plumley's name out there, this is a Suns team that wants to win next year. Yeah. So the likelihood of them throwing a Miles Plumley into a draft day trade for a top 10 pick is pretty slim because they already didn't play Alex Lynn last year. And so they must, in their mindset, they know they're not going to play any top 10 pick this year big minutes. They're going to draft a guy who's got a great future and, as Amin says, can fill in behind someone who leaves in free agency a year from now. But you're not going to actually draft a top 10 guy to play this year, and so you can't you can't afford to lose Miles Plumley. So actually, if you're going to trade up, it's going to be draft picks only, or it's going to be um, some lesser player than one of your starters who who in starting lineup with those top five went twenty three and eleven this year. You know, you're just not, you're not going to trade one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's it's really hard to look at a team looking at the Phoenix Suns and saying, yeah, they're going to trade Miles Plumlee. Well, they're trying to compete this year, like you said. Oh, well, okay, they'll just trade Alex Len. Well, no, they, the general manager stamped his name on Alex Len by taking him number five. He said, this is my guy. And we've seen players get traded after being called someone's guy, obviously. But, yeah, I mean, is a team like the Lakers at six, the Kings at seven, especially those being also added the ne- next layer to the onion, they're also in the same division. But are those teams interested enough in a P.J. Tucker, Gerald Green, 14-18 combo package to move up and make the salaries work and give up the seven. It, it, it's not going to happen. Like, if it does, you know, Ryan McDonough is going to have a statue outside of the United Center or the, the U.S. <laughs> Airways Center out there, and we're going to get that built up right away before year two even really gets going for him as a general manager. But he can do some amazing things. We'll see what happens. But also there's there's a reality of it. And I think drafting at 14 and 18 – there's, I don't see a benefit of moving up to 10 is basically what I'm saying. I think that if you can move up to get a an impact current NBA player, great. If you can move into the top seven, great. If you're moving up to 9, 10, 11, there's not really much of a talent gap between 9, 10, 11, and 14 in this draft. It goes about seven or eight deep at the most, and then you get a lot of really good players after that for that soft middle like you usually have. Yeah, I think the only reason you would do it is if there's one guy you're going to target. And you could be targeting one guy for a couple of different purposes. Either A, he is the perfect fit, like a Vonley drops or something like that. And um, uh, you think, oh, I just need this one guy because I don't need two new rookies because I already have Landon Goodwin coming back. Or you trade 14 and 18 for a guy that another team wants that has a player that you want later in the draft, or not in the draft, but in a trade after July 1. You know, so um, there can be some strategy involved in going up a few spots from 14 and 18 to, to a higher spot, um, but it's only going to be because of a particular situation like that. It's not simply going to be, as you say, that 10 is better than 14 and 18 because it's not. Yeah, we saw it's it. With, the guy. We saw it with Minnesota and Utah. I mean, I, Gorgie Jang went off for a handful of games, and everyone wanted to give him the Rookie of the Year. 
Shabazz had moments here and there where he looked like an NBA player and most moments where he didn't. But, you know, can you say that those two are better than Trey Burke or can you say the other way around? Not really at this point because Trey Burke, you know, had the opportunity and had the ball in his hands every play and was able to go out there and do different things for Utah where Jang, you know, he went out there and said, hey, look, if Pekovic is not playing, I can start and I can rebound and I can block shots and I bring a value to this team next to Kevin Love that Trey Burke wouldn't necessarily bring. And Shabazz, you know, had his flashes where he looked like an NBA player. So the two for one thing can work, but it can also be a wash and it can also backfire in your face there. And and you end up, you know, with with a Shabazz Muhammad or you end up with a player in the top 10 that didn't really click or work for you. So it all has to fit. It all has to work. It all has to make a lot of sense there. And that's where you have guys like Brian McDonough making these decisions and, and guys, you know, maybe other guys not shooting blanks at the draft. You have guys like Ryan McDonough doing it. Exactly. I think that about does it. I, I don't know if you have any more uh, hot takes to put on this, but I think after a, quite a hiatus there, we're, we're, we're broaching on the almost two-hour mark here of this podcast, which I think is uh, going to be setting a new watermark for how long can these guys talk about the Phoenix Suns. Oh, no, no, no. This has only been just over an hour. So, you know, I mean, we're just barely into this, Chris. All right, let's keep going. Let's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, yeah, no, no I, I, think, I, think we covered, I think we covered most of it. I think... Uh, it is going to be interesting to see how this year plays out. I think, as I've, as I've written a little bit here, uh, McDonough has set a high bar for himself, but he hasn't done the kind of trade yet that he wants to do this year. Like, he has done the value trades. He's traded veterans for youth that um, was undervalued by their team, and, and you know, he saw their value. But there, there have been GMs in the past who were really good at drafting and acquiring youth but not getting that veteran that puts the team over the top before they start losing people to free agents, the youth to free agency, and then the team falls apart. I'm remembering, um, and this is going to be a cloudy memory right now, but I remember Portland having a couple of years back in the mid to late the 2000 decade uh, where they had a good young team and they had all the money in the world to acquire uh, the right free agent, but they just didn't. And then they started losing guys. Um, that was back when Brandon Roy and, and uh, LaMarcus Aldridge were young. They had room to, to add some VLs, but they just couldn't uh, finish off that, that team. And then they kind of peaked and Brandon Roy got hurt. Um, and then, you know, you've, you've always got teams like that where a GM is really good at acquiring youth, but not that finishing piece. Or a GM is really good at acquiring the big pieces, but can't get the youth and they don't match up. Um, so we don't know yet how McDonough is going to actually do going to the next step. And uh, I'm certainly anxious to find out. Yeah, yeah, and I think that one good example of that is Hennigan over there in Orlando right now where we're watching him acquire all this talent and we see all these fun moves and it looks like he's out there with his video game controller making these moves and you know collecting Mo Harkless and Tobias Harris and Nikola Vucevic and Victor Oladipo. And it's like, oh, this team is just deep. They're long. They're athletic. they got a lot of really nice pieces but where is that guy that's going to put them over the top? They got all the pieces that would look really nice around a star-level player and around a guy that's giving you your 20 to 25 points a night, but they don't have that guy that's going to give them their 20 to 25 points a night for winning basketball. So with the Phoenix Suns, I mean, the good thing is they might have gotten that guy in Eric Bledsoe or they might get that guy with some sort of move this year. I, I've said it time and time again, draft night is the new trade deadline night. It's, it's the night where... 
the big trades happen, the big moves happen, all the excitement, all the fireworks in terms of that, if that's what you're looking for as an NBA fan, is just the big trades. The trade deadline comes and goes, and you see some moves happen here or there, maybe one big move every year to two years on average. But it seems like over the past handful of years on draft night, some big, huge three-team trade that puts an all-star point guard over in New Orleans and you know gives a pick over to Philadelphia that gives them a, a future all-star and all these different fun things happen on draft night in terms of trade. So teams get desperate. They panic. They don't know what to do with their picks. They don't know what to do with their players. And a guy like Ryan McDonough seems smart enough to, to know exactly what to do with those picks and exactly what to do with those players if they give them to him. Yeah, I think the Suns really have a good mix, as, as uh, uh, Amin pointed out earlier. They've got Ryan McDonough on the talent side now, and, his, and he shouldn't be just the only one mentioned. Pat Connolly is supposed to be really, really good at that, and Ronnie Lester is a scout, supposed to be really good at that. And then on the business side and on the contract side, they've got Bavi and assistant GM Buckstein, who um, who can do all the numbers stuff and do all the comps and say, look, it's really not worth it to offer this guy this much more money or the money that they're asking because everyone else in his price range is, is a little bit lower. So, you know, you, you've got a nice mix, and um, the Suns have been looking for that for years, and I think they have it. Now it's just a matter of convincing the right team at the right time to drop their shorts, give up their star, and and take guys that that um, you know ultimately is a good deal for the Suns. So uh, we got we can all cross our fingers and hope it happens, but there's no guarantee it will. It takes two to tango, so we'll see if this summer somebody somebody blinks. Yeah, and and I think it's going to be fun to see like how that how that works out because there's a couple of can't miss talents in this year's draft, but. I don't know, like if you're the Milwaukee Bucks and you fall down to the number three spot in the draft, I mean, if you're a Phoenix Suns fan, are you going to go bananas if the Suns offer 14, 18, Goran Dragic and something else to sweeten the deal to go up to get that third pick? You wanted it, but you're losing Goran because, as we talked about before, you're, you're giving up a piece or you're giving up something really valuable to move up in this year's draft because you don't really have a lot of pieces that are going to mix well with 14 and 18 to move up. So it, it'll definitely be interesting. The good thing is, is that we're what... When this goes up, we're about 13 days away from the draft lottery. Well, we'll know for certain that the Suns are drafting either 14 or 1, 2, or 3. It's a 98.2% chance they're drafting 14, so I just kind of mentally have already gotten that locked in. But um, yeah, Actually, you know what, Chris? There's a 100% chance they're drafting 14. Based because on history. They jump, no, because if they jump into 1, 2, or 3... Minnesota drops to 14 and they get Minnesota's pick. <laughs> oh, look at you being clever. All right. So, yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. Oh, I don't know where you're going they with just, that. <laughs> they just might add a top three pick to their current draft stash. Exactly, exactly. And so when when they do rise to one, two, or three, and they collect 14, and they have 18, <laughs> and they have 27, they'll just combine 14, 18, and 27 for maybe the, the sixth pick or something like that, and it will really turn this youth movement around. Or you trade, or you trade number three. 14 and 18 for Kevin Love. We're not going to get into the Kevin Love. I'm not prepared to have this conversation, but my my irrational <laughs> hatred for him uh, from the bright side community is well known. I, it, it's not a it's not a hatred. I just I don't see the fit, and I don't see why people love this guy as much as they do. But um, that's neither here nor there. Maybe he needs to move from the frosty Minnesota to the nice warm winter south or nice warm south, and he'll be able to uh, to really impact winning. But yeah, then you will see the bright side. Then, then, then maybe he'll see the bright side um, of not selling out for rebounds and, and not being a stats-oriented guy. 
Um, but yeah, it's it'll it'll be interesting. I think that this year's draft will there's potential for a lot of fireworks, but then we got to temper that because every time you expect the fireworks, you get absolutely nothing. So be prepared to just enjoy the number 14, 18, and 27th pick. Probably a draft and stash somewhere in there, and you know some young players to get used to on this roster. Just just be prepared for that, and then be excited when something different happens. All right. Sounds good. This was a good podcast. I hope everyone enjoys it as much as I did. I think it's much better considering we have Dave Kokenauer, not Jim Kokenauer. <laughs> Strange Jim Freudian slip. <laughs> My brother Jim will be back next time, I guess. I, I don't know where that Freudian slip came from. I don't even remember saying it. Usually when I have a slip of a tongue, I'm like, oh, I said that. Let me correct myself. But uh, <laughs> unique little Freudian slip there. But, yeah, that's that's episode 55. We'll be back for, uh, for episode 56, probably closer to that draft lottery, either just before or just after, to talk about the findings, the happenings. And thanks for listening. Tell a friend. Share this with uh, with everybody out there. And we'll be back here pretty soon. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks.